everybody. You don't need to tell your vacation plans. And <laughs> now, five different times in the New Testament, it says greet one another, and we don't have to do it every service, but it's, it's just good to say hello to friends who are with us. Speaking of vacations, many of you are going to be heading on vacation this summer. I hope you have a great time. It's relaxing or strenuous, whatever you choose for your vacation, visiting family or friends. But I would just encourage you to remember here at Fellowship, the work of God goes on. And so what John just said, thanks for being faithful. Just remember the work of God goes on and uh, I encourage you to continue to give this summer. Sometimes when the offering plate goes by, you look in and there's nothing in it. Have you noticed that? That's because a lot of us give online. I give online and I make it a regular practice to the first thing that comes out of, of whatever I receive. I want to give to the Lord and honor Him. So even though you're gone, you might be able to do that. We're in the book of Nehemiah. You've heard that a couple of times. So go to chapter 5. Here at Fellowship, most of the time we preach through books of the Bible. And so we are in Nehemiah chapter 5. And let me just bring you up to speed. There's a great city with a great problem. And that is in Jerusalem, the walls have been broken down by an invading army. And we might not think that's much of a problem, but that would be like living in a house without doors and windows, just the opening there, just the hole. There's no protection at all. And God burdens a man named Nehemiah to travel a thousand miles, inspects the damage, and then gathers the people together and challenges them to build the wall. And they come back to Nehemiah with that phrase, let us arise up and build. And so they begin the building project. They're working together and the wall is going up. And we've kind of taken that, those words, let us rise up and build as a theme for the next season of the life of our church. And it means different things to different people. And in the sharing service we have next week, some of us will want to come to a mic and say, you know what this has impressed uh, on my heart? This part of rebuilding or building I'd like to see us do this or this or this. And we just kind of dream a minute about the future of the church and what God has placed on our heart that needs to be built. So I do hope that you are, you're here for that. I heard the challenge. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the way Jesus builds his church is through his people, through using their spiritual gifts, our spiritual gifts, to serve, to lead, to teach, to welcome, to share the gospel to give. And so as we all use our spiritual gifts, the church is built up and Jesus is building his church. In fact, Ephesians 4, toward the end of that first section, says the way the church is built up is as each part does its work. And so we work together and Jesus is building his church. It's never easy, is it? Did the Lord ever ask anybody to do something easy? So it's not easy. It was not easy for the people building that wall. There, had, there were threats and fear that was created in their hearts. There was fatigue, uh, the rubble, the magnitude of, of the job. They were ridiculed and criticized, but nothing stopped them until chapter 5. And the work comes to a screeching halt. And it's interesting. They stopped building the wall not because of threats or ridicule or fear or fatigue Nothing stops them from the outside. It's internal conflict. 
is something inside. And anyone who's ever in leadership knows something about conflict. doesn't matter whether you're a leader at home, a parent, or you're part of a business team or a sports team or a band. You're working at some organization somewhere where two or three are gathered together, there are four opinions, right? To dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. To live below with those we know, well, that's a different story. So it's inevitable. The greatest threat to the health and growth of a church or of a family or of an organization or of a business is not outside, it's inside. Last year, 4,000 churches closed their doors in this country. Closed their doors. The vast majority, not because of government restrictions, not even because of COVID, but because of internal issues. It's been estimated that 5% of missionaries will come home this year. The vast majority, not because of government action or health issues, many of them because they can't get along with other missionaries or with nationals, or there's a conflict with their home church. The greatest challenges we face are inside, not outside. Jesus said, a house divided itself against itself cannot stand. So what does a leader do when there's internal issues, internal conflict? Well, one thing he does is he clarifies what's the problem. What is the issue? And I wonder if anyone here could guess what was the issue that caused the, the, the breakdown, the stoppage on the wall? What caused the people to stop building the wall? The rest from the outside couldn't do it. Fear, fatigue, all the magnitude of the task, nothing could stop. This one thing stopped them. Put it like this. In school, we learned to count it. We spend most of our lives, 40, 70 hours a week, earning it. We invest countless hours thinking and discussing how to manage it. We scroll through websites and walk through stores hours on end deciding how to spend it. Some of us enter sweepstakes and raffles hoping to win it. More than we care to admit, we worry about not having enough of it. We dream and scheme to figure out ways to acquire more of it. Arguing over it is the leading cost of marriage disintegration, despair over losing it leads, has led to suicide. Love of it causes many in our, of our society's crimes. The lack of it causes many of our society's nightmares. Some say it's the root of all evil. Some call it a means of great good. And there's one thing we can all agree about, and that is money's important, right? Mortgages are not free. They're not handing out food every day to everybody all the time. And it's amazing how often the Bible speaks about money. More than 2,000 verses in the Bible refer directly to money. Jesus told 38 parables, 16 are about money. Jesus spoke more about money than he did about heaven, hell, and the kingdom of God combined. In fact, Jesus mentioned money five times more often than prayer and faith combined. You say, why? Well, Richard Halverson, who was chaplain of the Senate some years ago, said this, Jesus spoke more about money than any other single thing because money is an exact index to a man's true character. All through Scripture, there is an intimate correlation between the development of a man's character and how he handles money. 
Jesus once said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. In other words, you want to find out what you really love? You want to find out what's really important to you? Follow the money trail, what Jesus would say. I've been saying for years, Ruthie has heard me say this for years, if you'll show me your bank statement or your credit card statement and your calendar, I'll tell you what your priorities are. I'll tell you what keeps you up at night. I'll tell you what your stresses are. I'll tell you what you value, and I'll tell you what you think about God. Because money reveals our heart. In the Bible, there is one overriding principle of money management, how to think about money, and it is this. One basic principle. God is the owner. I'm the manager. Would you say that with me? God is the owner. I'm the manager. It all belongs to God, and we are stewards. We are managers of God's money. Sometimes I think it might be good if our credit card or debit cards contained our name and the name of Jesus. Or if our bank statement just carried not only our name, but the name of Jesus, because it all belongs to Him. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Everything that is in it, it is His, and He asks us to manage His money for Him. And He tells us there will be a day where we will give an account of how we've managed his money. So that's the, that's the one overriding principle of stewardship in all of the scriptures. I had a friend one time who was very blunt with me. He said, um, why should I give God any of my money? Stewards don't ask that question. Stewards ask the question, how much of God's money should I give? It's all his. And he's so gracious. He shares it with us. He asks us to be gracious, be willing to, be, to share what he's given to us. And the devil loves to use money to create conflict and stop the work of God in homes and neighborhoods and churches. And that's the problem in Nehemiah chapter 5. Look at the first five verses with me. It's on the screen, hopefully in your Bible. Now there arose a great cry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. And there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. Now, And there were those who said, we borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it for other men have our fields and our vineyards. The timing could not have been worse. They're a month into the rebuilding. The wall is almost up. They're laying bricks with one hand, holding spears because of the threat of ambush with the other hand. And while they're working on the walls, they cannot work on their fields. These are primarily farmers. It's agrarian, an agrarian culture. So the farms are neglected. And there's a famine at the same time. They're running out of food. They're having to pay taxes, which are very high in the Persian Empire. There's not enough grain for next year's crops. And in those days, there's no bankrupt protection. There was no government assistance. And here's Nehemiah wanting them to work day and night on the wall. So there's spiraling inflation. Some have mortgaged their fields. They've borrowed money at high interest to pay by seed, to pay taxes. Worst of all, the crops have failed 
creditors taken their property, took their children as slaves. Rebuilding the wall was ruining families. It's ruining people. People are going hungry. They're losing their property, and they feel powerless. And worst of all, it's Jewish people who are loaning money at high interest rates to other Jewish people. And when they can't pay it back, they say, well, give us your kids as my slaves until the debt is paid. That's the crisis. I see six signs of financial bondage, financial crisis in these five verses. Let me just list them for you. Number one is conflict in the home because it mentions wives. There's there's an outcry that's being made. I've wondered sometimes when I do marriage ceremonies if I should say, till debt do us part. Number two is desperation. That's verse two. How, How do we feed our families? That's all you can think about. Number three, verse three, they're borrowing just to get by. They're using the equity in their homes and their businesses to put food on the table, hoping things are going to turn around, and then there's a famine or a recession. Verse four, they're borrowing to pay taxes. Taxes are high. Can you feel the tension here? You need to know the Bible is not against borrowing. It's not a sin to borrow. There are great warnings that are put in place about that. Verse 5 says they're mortgaging the future of their children because of financial stress. I mean, in our day, we declare bankruptcy or there'd be foreclosure. We'd max out our credit cards. But in Israel, if you can pay your debts, your kids go to work for whoever you owe money to to pay off the debt. So you got bad debt, you got loan sharks, you got mortgage at high, rising interest rates, you got economic greed, opportunism. Kind of sounds like today's news, doesn't it? And verse 5, they're feeling powerless. You ever felt that way? We're getting deeper and deeper. But we see no way out. You feel trapped. You feel like a failure. You sit in church and you want to give and you can't. You're angry at God. Maybe you want to medicate your pain. You need to know, friends, that when the Bible talks about finances, it doesn't talk just about poor and rich. It talks about righteous and wicked. So there are four kinds of people in Scripture. There are the righteous rich, those who earn in a righteous way. They work hard. They work smart. They just, they're, they're generous. They give freely. They take care of their family. They take care, take care of others. And if God has put you among those who are affluent, never feel guilty about that. The Bible does not condemn wealth in itself. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. And there are many wealthy people in the scriptures, Abraham and Isaac and uh, Jacob and and Job and Nicodemus and David and Solomon and Joseph of Arimathea who gave his own tomb for Jesus to be buried in. There's the righteous rich and there's the wicked rich who get their money through crooked business or they're, they're stingy. They don't pay taxes. They don't pay their bills. They take advantage of their employees. There are the righteous poor who love God and work hard, spend wisely. That's my family. It's Ruthie's family. It's where we came from. My dad worked at a filling station. He worked at as an oil field supply agent. He was honest. He was hardworking. We were like lower middle class. He never went to a casino. I never saw my dad drinking a lot. He didn't have a lot of hobbies except working on our cars. He just fed us as kids. He paid the mortgage. Righteous poor. 
And there's the wicked poor who won't work, won't get out of bed, always looking for a get-rich-quick scheme, always looking for a shortcut. When they get money, they blow it in unrighteous ways. And what is going on here is the unrighteous rich are taking advantage of the righteous poor. So you've got two kinds of financial bondage here. We talked about one. It's the bondage of need. We've seen that. There's also the bondage of greed. The bondage of greed. Those with power, money, affluence, taking advantage of hard times, profiting off of the misfortunes of others. By the way, this happened in our country early on. The Revolutionary War, 1777. Lafayette, the French general, visited the troops of the Continental Army, and he found many with blackened limbs because of frost frostbite. They, their limbs needed amputation. The reason? The winter was fairly mild that year. One historian says the supplies of warm blankets and clothing was held by merchants in Boston who refused to release the clothing and the blankets unless they reached a profit of a thousand percent. Exploiting their own people. That's here. So what do you do? Here's Nehemiah. What do you do? Verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I, so, I'm so impressed by this man, Nehemiah. Most of us, when we're angry, we either stuff it or we explode, right? Or we do both. Nehemiah acknowledges, I'm, I'm, I'm angry. The Bible says, be angry and sin not. That's easier said than done. But this is holy anger. This is righteous indignation. Friends, there are some things as Christians we should be angry about. This is like Jesus' anger when he drove the money changers out of the temple. He said, why was he angry? For two reasons. He was angry because God's people were ignoring God's word. Exodus 23, Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 15 says that Jews could lend to other Jews but never charge interest. They could lend to outsiders, charge interest, but not Jews. In fact, he encouraged the Jewish people to be generous to the poor. And he's angry because God's people are exploiting their own people. So verse 7 says, he says, I took counsel with, within myself. He doesn't explode, doesn't stuff. He, he chills. <laughs> he stops. He reflects. How often, have you, how, how often have you been angry and said something you wish you could take back? Nehemiah gets control of his feelings, thinks through his response. He chills, and then he confronts. He calls the leaders together. He pulls no punches, and he tells them why he's angry. Look at verse 7. I took counsel with myself. I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. You're robbing your brothers. This is your family. And I held a great assembly against them, and I said to them, we, as far as we're able, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. He says, when I came, I bought back some people who had been enslaved. Now you're enslaving them again, hoping I'll buy them back again. And they were silent. They couldn't find a word to say. So I said, the thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunt of the nations, our enemies? He says, you have forgotten who you are. You have forgotten who God is. You have forgotten what's at stake here. It's the reputation of God in front of our enemies. And I see three additional signs of financial bondage here. 
the bondage of greed. Number one is thinking more of money than of God. He says, don't, don't, you, don't you fear God? Don't you know someday you will stand accountable before God? Fearing God is taking God seriously. Fearing God is like the fear that a child has, the respect of a child for a, a, a parent. It's walking in faith. It's, it's trusting God. It's asking the question, does this glorify God? It's practicing His presence so that I'm aware at every moment I'm living in His very presence. You've forgotten that. How many people have gained the world and lost their soul? Judas was not the only person ever to sell his soul and someone else for money. Jesus once said it's very difficult for a rich man to enter heaven. Why? Because he's rich? No, because of the deceitfulness, the power of of deceptiveness that money has, deceitfulness of riches. Money has a way of turning your head. It has a way of shriveling your heart, mastering you, how careful we have to be. If God entrusts us with wealth, and you know what's happening right now? Some of you are putting up a wall. You're putting up a wall right now. And as humbly and as lovingly as I know how to say, I just have to ask you, could it be possible that some of us are in this kind of bondage? We think a lot more of what we have than we do of God. Here's another one, another sign of the bondage of greed, and that is the breakdown of of love, the breakdown of Christian love. Non-Christians are watching us us from this church, people we work with, people in our neighborhoods, to see if Jesus is real. And Jesus once said, they'll know you're my disciples if you love one another. You know, the early church had a problem, just like Nehemiah chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 11 You know, the Roman world had a 10-day work week, not a 7-day work week. So when the church met, they often had to meet very early in the morning or very late at night. And they had what was called the agape, the love feast. They would gather, they would eat meal together, they had the Lord's Supper, had communion. And the wealthy folks would come early, bring their food, kind of like potluck, bring their food, bring their drink, have a great time consuming it with, with each other. And then the tradespeople would come in after work. And they had like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and they're there. And then the slaves who could not get off until the very last moment drag in exhausted, and there's nothing left. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, I have no praise for you. It's a breakdown of Christian love. And here's another sign, one more. It's just compromising the Word of God. That's verse 9. Don't you... Because you know what the, t- the, the, the law says. So what do you do? They're asking, well, what do we do? Nehemiah clarifies by giving his own example. Verse 10, moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and the oil that you've been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. He made them promise. I shook, the, out, shook out the fold of my garment, expression of outrage or grief. And I said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. May he be shaken out and empty. You get the feeling he's a little exercised. 
And he knows it's easy to promise to change. It's something else to, uh, to actually do it. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they promised. Sin was confessed. Sin was forsaken. Revival breaks out. People begin to worship God. Their sin is out. It's forgiven. It's, it's, they moved from it. They're changing. And people see that. People are able to eat now. People are able to, to pay taxes. Things are changing. And revival breaks out because people get right with God and with one another. Here's the point. Nehemiah does not ignore conflict. He deals with it. Any area of conflict in your life, you're just kind of ignoring? Family? Work? Church? What are you doing about it? Verse 14, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people, took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even my servant, even their servants lorded over the people. I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations who were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one oxen. Can you imagine slaughtering an oxen a day? And six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. I want to close with this. I find three spiritual principles of financial freedom in what Nehemiah says. Number one, determined to honor God. He says, because of the fear of God, I didn't charge what I had the right to charge. He was entitled to tax the people, live extravagantly. He chose not to. He pays for his own expenses out of his own pocket. Why? I feared the Lord. He took God seriously. God was the central controlling reality in his life. Where every day, living in his presence, I'm orienting my life toward him. He determined to honor God with his life. The New Testament version of this is Matthew 6, You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, those things you're worried about, God says, I'll take care of them. You seek first my kingdom. Here's the second principle. He became a sacrificial giver. It's verses 17 and 18. He fed, he fed 150 people every day. And what a meal out of his own pocket. And nobody put a gun to his head to do that. Nobody forced Nehemiah to do that. What motivates generosity? What is it? What motivates sacrifice? Well, love does. Just ask any mom with a newborn. I mean, she's up all night long. She's changing $50 a day. Why? Out of love. A desire to do your best, that motivates. Here's a businessman who sacrifices some hour of sleep to turn a C presentation into an A presentation. Or who's, here's an athlete who puts off playing on his day off in order to devote himself to practice. But for Nehemiah, it's the love of God and love for his people. The glory of God and the good of people motivated 
this man to be generous. You ever noticed, have you ever known a sacrificial giver? Ever known a sacrificial giver? I think I may have told you this story. If I had, just kind of bear with me. We were in a church service and we were trying to raise money to build an addition to the building that was, that was needed. And um, have I told this story about the, the ring? Do your head like this or like this? One, one with the other. Guy in the offering, the guy brought down an offering plate and said, Hey, Pastor, there's a wedding ring in here. Wedding ring? Someone had put a wedding ring in the offering plate. And uh, began to ask around and found out it was a widow in our church. She put her wedding ring in the offering. I went to her and I said, We're going to be okay. And she said, Don't rob me of this. This is not about you, this is not about the church. This is for God. Well, on a Sunday morning, I shared that. And I said, is there anyone here who would buy this ring back so we can give it back to this widow? And three guys jumped up and came running to the front with checkbooks. One guy wrote out a check, gave it to one of the ushers, and took the ring and went back to the widow and gave it to her. That act of sacrificial giving generated an enormous wave of generosity in the church. On another occasion, a man put a check, and I I think it was for $800, and he put his name there, and I knew that guy. He was living on Social Security of about $1,500 a month. That was his only income. And I went to him and asked him about it. I said, this is is a large amount for you. And he said, well, I got an insurance settlement. And I I said, Don, we're going to be okay he said the same thing the widow said, don't take this from me. This is not about the church. This is for God. Don't rob me of this. There's such incredible power of sacrificial giving. And Nehemiah experienced that. He points to himself saying that. How many great projects for God have been done because of generous, sacrificial people? The fact that this church has no debt And we have an almost Disney-quality children's area with no debt. That doesn't happen without sacrificial giving by people. So determine to honor God. Number two, become a sacrificial giver. Can I say one more thing while I'm on a roll here? I have a friend named Ed. We were trying to raise money for something. And he he caught me afterwards, and he was a deacon in our church. And he said, I... I'm trying to sell my business. I I have nothing to give. I want to give, but I have nothing to give. And I knew Ed very well. And I said, do you have a dime? He said, don't be ridiculous. I said, oh, so it's not about you're unable to give. It's a little bit of pride there. He came to me later and said, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. We all can be sacrificial givers. Here's a third thing, and I'll close with this. He prays for God's favor. Did you catch that? Remember me, he says. Remember me, Lord, for what I've done. How do you take that? Is, is, it, is it okay? Is that a good prayer? Is it right to ask God to remember what we do in serving Him? To ask Him to remember our sacrifices? Is it right to ask God to reward you for what you've done? 
It's interesting that Hebrews 11, 6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God, for he who comes to, comes to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Jesus was motivated by a reward for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, despised the shame, Hebrews 12, 1. Jesus was unashamed to motivate people with reward. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, we poured into your lap. Blessed are the merciful, they'll receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Peter said, we've left everything to follow you. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, no one who has left home, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Why be generous? Why sacrifice? Because Jesus says the way we handle our finances, the way we give, sacrifice, and serve has a direct bearing on how we will be rewarded in heaven. And we will never look back and talk about sacrifice. Not when we look at a bloodstained cross. On January the 8th, 1956, five Aka Indians in Ecuador killed Jim Elliott and his four missionary companions. They were trying to bring the gospel to this unreached tribe of 60 people. Four young wives lost their husbands. Nine children lost their fathers. And Elizabeth Elliott wrote that the world called it a nightmare of tragedy. And then she added, I believe it was in Life magazine at that time, the world does not recognize the truth of the second clause in Jim Elliott's credo. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. David Livingston, who walked across Africa, endured incredible hardship to take the gospel to villages, wrote, For my part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God appointed me to such an office People talk of sacrifice I made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice which is simply paid back as a small part of a great debt owed to our God, which we can never repay? Is that sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and bright hope of glorious destiny hereafter? Away with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. It's a privilege Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with a foregoing of common conveniences of this life may make us pause and cause spirit to waver and soul to sink, but let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us and for us. I never made a sacrifice. I thought about taking an offering right now, but this is not bait and switch. This is hearing God's word and remembering that he who is rich for our sake became poor, that we who are poor might become rich. The Lord Jesus. Would you bow in prayer with me, please? If you are here this morning, I really believe God ordained that you be here. And if you have never turned from your sins as these people did,
and receive the only payment that can take care of sin, what Jesus did on the cross that we have sung about, rose from the dead. Right now, would you pray in your heart and just say something like, Jesus, I don't understand it all, but I need you. Would you forgive my sins? Would you come into my life? Would you change me? Make me the person you want me to be, but I'm trusting you. Save me from a horrible afterlife. Save me from myself. Lord, some of us hearing this um, know that we've heard from you. And we want to be like these people who say, I've heard it, I will be obedient. I will, I will joyfully follow your word. So Lord, cause us to be known as a generous church maybe more generous than any church in town, maybe not because of the amount that we give, but because of what it cost us. May there be people all over this area who are blessed and enriched, who have basic needs met. May there be people around the world who hear the gospel because of the generosity of this church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, the worship team, if you would come on up, and we're going to stand. We're going to be dismissed by singing the praises of our God.